Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This week we're on the third episode of our study of Revelation as we explore Revelation 4-5 to and what racism has to do with the slaughtered lamb. Now I know and I am humbled as we embark on this episode that racism is a highly contested, highly sensitive political issue in which I, as a white pastor, am limited in what I understand. However, as I've been studying Revelation and asking what it means for guiding us in how to follow the politics of Jesus, I can't help but think that this is not only a necessary, but an urgent conversation that needs to be examined. In light of the vision of the throne, the gathered tribes, tongues, and nations that are worshiping around the Lamb, and the need for engagement by Christians in our present political moment, we need to talk frequently, consistently, and deliberately about racism and the slaughtered lamb. This reflection will not be perfect or the last word on the subject, far from it, but I offer it to you humbly and prayerfully as a plea that if we're to follow our resurrected Lord, we must talk about racism and the lamb that was slain. So let's dive in. I, like many of you, have been doing a lot of reading on racism recently. Now, reading doesn't prove anything. Like any virtue signaling, reading can sometimes become a defense that we hide behind because now we know better as opposed to the lasting change that shifts how we live in the world. But I've been reading all the same, and I really have been learning a ton, particularly at the feet of black authors, historians, and theologians. I mean, we all choose our lanes that we're most comfortable with to hear hard things, and those are the lanes that are most comfortable for me. But there are three insights, three historical and theological insights, that I really think could open up our conversation here on what I'm calling racism and the slaughtered lamb. So the first is by Ibram Kendi the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. In it, he's going to argue an insight I had never stumbled across before. Kendi suggests that at its heart, racism and capitalism are actually what he describes as conjoined twins, birthed, he says, at the same moment. He points specifically to the late 16th and early 17th century where Spanish and Portuguese naval fleets saw the opportunity to exponentially increase profits by seizing new lands while simultaneously racializing blacks from whites, allowing them to use what they considered to be now lesser commodities, increasing their workforce and driving up their profits. This machine, or more accurately as Kendi insists, this conjoined twin that has pressed together both the growth impulse of capitalism with the commodifying impulse of making human beings lesser than, have grown up together and have continued thriving ever since. In our last episode, I asked if we have reflected deeply enough on the effect of capitalism on our politics and on what it means to be a Christian living in a capitalistic society today. Therefore, when I stumbled across Kendi's point, it invited me to ponder. Is our capitalism connected to our racism? Is our denigration of people into growth and profit the same impulse 
that drove our industrialization and exploding economy, the same impulse that justifies denigrating people into being used or dismissed. That's my first thought. My second is going to be connected to the first, and this one is offered by Willie James Jennings, a highly regarded theologian from Duke who now teaches at Yale Divinity School. In his book, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, Jennings is going to unpack Kendi's diagnosis with a theologian's scalpel. As Jennings observed the beginning of the slave trade, justified tragically by Christian nations and leaders, his theological question is, how? How could Christians, formed in the worship practices of the church and in the imaginations of the Bible, how could those very same Christians justify the atrocities of the slave trade? He interestingly suggests that their problem was theological. Jennings argues that it was in fact a breakdown of a theology of creation that led to the explosion and expansion of the slave trade across Europe and the new colonial world. So he argues that a rich theological reflection on Genesis that reverberates across scripture is that human beings are created equitably in the image of God, but then even further, these same image bearers are placed by God in the land, culminating in God's calling Israel and giving them the land of promise. Yet, the slave traders, when they commodified those of a different race, threw off this impulse to view human beings as image bearers of God. And they also threw off the impulse to connect these human beings to their own placement in a specific land. So the result, Jennings sees, is that the slave traders detached an entire people from both their image bearing and from the land they inhabited. Jennings' hopeful point is that while it was, in fact, a theological breakdown that led to European slave traders, it can, in fact, be a theological renewal that recovers, when biblically reflected, what it means to be a human being made in the image of God and connected to the land we find ourselves in. He's going to say, quote, Although the history of Christians in the colonial West shows the difficulty of people, imagining space and people together. Christianity itself offers the very hope of their joining. There's much to ponder here in Jennings' instruction. When we find racism so clearly and visibly manifested this summer in our public political consciousness elevated by the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, what Jennings is saying is that we don't only have a public policy dilemma, we also have a theological dilemma as well. This summer confronted us with a creational dilemma. We have an image of God problem. To my secular friends, though let's be honest, few of them are probably listening to this podcast about the Bible specifically, this really is a problem. Because while it feels good to fight racism and elevate human rights, secularism doesn't really offer us much incentive to treat everyone fairly or that much incentive to stop subtly leveraging our race along with our capitalism for our own interests and gains. But to my Christian friends, who, let's be honest, are probably the ones listening to this podcast, while we need to speak out, to post, and to protest against racial inequality that we find culturally today, there is a deeper theological vision 
rooted in the fabric of our society itself that needs to be addressed and recovered. A vision of God instilling the very image of himself upon all his creation, rooted in the land that he has placed us in. If we could recover such a vision, then the Christian community especially could have a new foundation for our unity and shared pursuit of reconciliation. Which leads to my third point, this time by a white historian, David L. Chapel, who nonetheless wrote a provocative history on the civil rights movement called A Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow. In it, Chapel makes an interesting observation. He notes that political liberals in the 1960s, mostly found in the Democratic Party, were openly speaking out against racism, much as they continue to do today. However, the liberals of the 1960s, though they were hopeful for change, were not actually all that invested in moving the policies of the country to directly confront or combat racism. This wasn't because liberals didn't think racism was wrong, so much as their liberal political outlook caused them to believe in the inherent goodness of humanity, so that they thought genuinely that if culture was left alone, then with enough education, enough time, enough social welfare policies, and enough reflection, eventually all of our American politics would come to see the error of their ways. By their logic, racism was slowly fading and it would eventually disappear altogether. However, Chapel argues that it was actually black Christians, particularly Martin Luther King Jr. and others who had been reading the theology of Reinhold Niebuhr, began insisting that it was precisely because human beings are inherently sinful that our public policies and our politics needed to be changed. With that belief, politics were not a means of optimism and unabated progress, but instead become the necessary system of restraint. Government should be used to confront and curb human sinfulness, according to King and these other black community leaders who saw the need for active engagement and political reform if the country was ever going to change and actively resist racist agendas. So the title of Chapel's history, A Stone of Hope, comes from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, where he says that he has faith his people could hew a stone of hope from the mountain of despair. This is King's poetry at its finest, and yet it's also a clear theological vision. Chapel's going to say, The faith that drove black Southern protesters to their extraordinary victories grew out of a realistic understanding of the typically dim prospects for social justice in this world. Isn't that fascinating that for King, despair was the mountain we found ourselves confronting. But hope could only be had for those who would do the hard work to hew hope from this very same mountain of despair. King and others grounded their political activism, not on belief in human goodness to win out inevitably, but instead of a realistic vision of human sinfulness and a hoped-for future, a stone of hope that could be hewn through political engagement in the present. Which brings us back to Revelation. The studies argue that Revelation is inherently political, and that it wants to teach us by its disruptive visions the politics of Jesus in contrast to the politics of Caesar, which attempt to govern our present reality. Last episode, we talked about the pressures of capitalism, the temptation of idolatry, 
and the politics of Jesus that lead to intentional denial and self-restraint found in communal fasting. So what then of racism, that conjoined twin to capitalism, that is in truth a failure of our creational theology, and whose engagement requires not only a theology of sin, government policy, and restraint, but also will need to rest on that stone of hope, a future glory in our vision of God. Revelation has this way of changing cutscenes. If you've been following along in the text, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus is going to end with this foreboding verse, He who has ears, let him hear. We are left to ponder our political present, even as we look towards this future hope that Jesus may just yet be willing to offer. As we're left somewhat stranded in the moment, suddenly in chapter 4, John is going to unfold this new scene for us. This is coming from Revelation 4, 1-3. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So I love this scene here for John. It's pretty typical of Revelation fashion. We're going to often find a voice, a door that's open in heaven, and then someone calling out to John, something along the lines of what we find here. Come on up. I want to show you what's going to take place. Now, I found it interesting as I was doing some digging that many parallel apocalyptic visions from John's time, written by other often Jewish writers, would describe this very arduous journey that had to take place before they could even make it to the throne of heaven. So normally the person receiving this vision would have to go on a kind of quest almost. They'd be confronting various perils and obstacles. Sometimes they'd even wrestle with demons or angels. And finally, with quite a flourish of dramatic tale-telling, would arrive at the glorious heavenly gates. Yet, in John's telling, he's just there. There's something very gospel-esque about this. John just appears, by mercy and grace, at the throne of the Most High, the very object of the most intense desire in the ancient mystical world. Yet, as John is there, he's going to describe to us what he sees. This is coming from verse 3 of Revelation 4. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John's language for all of its beauty, is far more straightforward than other visionaries. We'll notice only this echo of imagery drawn from Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1. You can go back and check it out sometime. Jasper is going to be crystal clear and radiant and will feature again in the New Jerusalem. It signifies the same God who's dwelling there in the heavenly city is here in this heavenly vision. In Ezekiel 1, God's appearance will said to be radiant like sapphire. That's coming from Ezekiel 1.26. And that God is shining with what Ezekiel could only describe as the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of God's brightness. That's again from Ezekiel 1. So John is here. He sees the throne. And yet we notice specifically that John has not yet told us who he sees occupying the throne. It's almost like John is leaving it open. 
letting us wonder in mystery who we might discover. As John moves relatively quickly past this throne, John is going to continue. This is coming from Revelation 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So the purpose of these 24 elders is going to become clear in just a moment. We find that they are there to worship God. This is coming now from verse 10 to 11. It says, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. However, it's been difficult for commentators to place who these 24 elders are. There seems to be a clear sense that the number 24 represents the 12 tribes of Israel and probably also the 12 apostles. This becomes one of those classic places in the book of Revelation where debates will rage fierce. My favorite theory is that these are possibly the 12 sons of Jacob, as well as the 12 apostles from the New Testament. Others suggest these simply could be angels representing each tribe and apostle, or still others suggest they're fulfilling a role, such as the 24 priests have of 1 Chronicles 24:4 who attend to God's presence. The point is, whoever they are, we're told that they are clothed in white garments. That's either going to represent purity or perhaps even the endurance of martyrdom. And that all 24 of these saints are wearing golden crowns on their heads. That's from verse 4. These are the very images that Jesus has been promising to those seven churches that we found in our last episode for any who would overcome the trials and temptations they found in the politics of Caesar. John will hear next the sounds that often accompany God's appearing and presence. I often like to think of Mount Sinai here, as John tells us in verse 5 to verse 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. It's beautiful here in John's vision that the sea, an ancient thought, always symbolized chaos, often was the force of destruction that needed to be subdued by the gods. But here, as John is pointing out to us in heaven, the sea is as smooth as glass. It's like it's already been totally confronted and remains steady under the throne. As you keep reading John's vision, he's going to next describe those infamous four creatures. Perhaps you've stumbled across them in your own Bible reading. We're told that they look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. These creatures are probably meant to be representative of all of creation, simply symbolizing what the ancient world saw as the most regal of each creature that could be perpetually standing there before the Lord. Each of them day and night with the 24 elders never stop singing the song that Isaiah himself said he heard before the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So what do we make of John's vision so far? I'm especially struck how similar so many of his images are to the images of other Old Testament prophets. I mean, it kind of makes one wonder, were they all glimpsing the same scene? Did each of them get a part of this picture? that was unfolding from eternity. I hope you've been picking up that my heart this study has been to keep every episode grounded 
and the very real political realities that are often ignored when studying the book of Revelation. But in this moment, I can't help but wonder. When you ponder the heavenly court John saw, hear all these other prophets describing similar scenes, you start to feel these questions well up inside. Did time even exist in what John saw? I mean, there's no day or night. Where was John exactly? Clearly, he wasn't high up in the sky, but was he in another dimension? A world or realm connected but distinct from our own? When I was being trained early on in the Anglican tradition, I remember this early conversation where I said I was drawn to liturgical styles of worship, and this priest quickly corrected me. I'll never forget that he said to me, No, 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 John, I think it's important to understand. We don't see the worship that takes place on Sunday as a style. We instead see it as a local expression of the ongoing worship that is always taking place before the throne in heaven. We just happen for our brief gathering to be stepping in to join the saints who have been and will continue to worship. I think this is some of what John has offered us, has gifted us as the church and his vision. This reminder that even in the very pressing and real political realities of the present, the saints are perpetually gathered in steadying worship before the throne, beckoning us to join with them, either now in our local context or forever in eternity as we continue in faithfulness before our God. Yet John's vision is not yet done, and we've not yet returned to the politics of racism. John is next going to see in his vision a scroll. This is now from Revelation chapter 5. It says this in verse 1 to verses 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, as I step back from this passage, there's much debate over what is written on the scroll. This is the book of Revelation, after all, and you'll continue to find most details are passionately debated. Yet, there is something particularly tender to me about this scene. In the Greek, at the end, it's going to say that John wept passionately, or as the NIV puts it, I wept and I wept. There is this true grief depicted here at a creation that has turned in on itself. I can't help but think of Willie Jennings' description of this inverted world in which Christian Portuguese, Spaniards, and subsequently Dutch, German, French, English, and Americans would seize their fellow image bearer and rip them from their lands, would beat their backs to work their fields to make their profit, only to continue to belittle, mock, scorn, snub, beat, choke, and kill them, all because of the color of their skin. Who could possibly undo such damages? Who could possibly open such a costly scroll. I wonder sometimes if we aren't meant to weep with John more than we do in the church. If sometimes we don't rush John on here, 
rush him on to redemption. But instead, I'm thankful for one that John pauses to weep. That tells us that sometimes when we see the inevitability of a scroll that seems too tightly sealed, when we see circumstances that have stacked with the situations of human suffering that are beyond our comprehension or fathomability, we have no other option but to stop and weep. To weep and weep and weep passionately. It's not to say that there is no comfort for those who weep. We're told one of the elders, who seems to know the ways of the throne, is going to help John by directing his gaze. This is coming from verse 6. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, what's coming up in Revelation 5 is one of my favorite shocks in all of Scripture. John and we as his readers have just been set up. If you were listening to this for the first time, you are now expecting, because of where the elder has pointed our gaze, that we are going to finally meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're holding in the back of our mind that white shocked hair, that sword emerging from Jesus' mouth, the roar of his voice as the rushing of many waters. Or maybe even more specifically, we're expecting this lion who's going to come in with fearsome strength and overwhelming majesty. But that's not what happens next. Instead, John is going to say, and this is from Revelation 5 to 6, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now I have to pause here because it's such a strange way to describe what John is seeing, and we still don't quite know how to capture it in English. There, in front of the throne, instead of a lion, instead of a man, is a lamb. The humble, meek, and vulnerable lamb. Lambs were always seen as weak in the ancient world. In fact, though they did provide some good, lambs were often seen as almost useless. They couldn't defend themselves. They were often foolish and wandered and got lost. Yet it gets even stranger. John says this lamb is very clearly standing, although somehow at the same time, John says it had been slain. English translations soften it with the as though. Yet the Greek is firmer here and conveys this sense of ongoingness, this perpetual reality to the lamb's slainness. I think the best translation is actually the lamb was standing perpetually slain. Or perhaps to give it some theological weight, the lamb was standing eternally slain. A picture speaks a thousand words, and John has just given us the gospel in an image. The lamb, the weak and vulnerable lamb, stands strong and triumphant, though it is in fact eternally slain. This is the one who is worthy. 
This is the one who can open the scroll. Only the lamb who knows our weakness. Only the lamb who knows our pain. Only the lamb who could cover our sins with the blood of his innocence. Only the lamb eternally slain, though standing. Verses 7 to 10 say, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Maybe you think it's arbitrary to talk about politics and racism when it comes to Revelation 4 to 5. Maybe I'm not the best person to do it. But I hear this song of the saints, and I see a redemptive and creational vision that cuts across the horrors of racism that continue to plague our lamb. I mean, where else do you get such clarity and profound guidance for how to navigate the politics of Caesar? And when we hear this vision from the politics of Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a king and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Where in this vision do you hear the people of God divided by skin color or ethnicity? Where are those excluded, neglected, or condemned for the color of their skin? This is the blood of the Lamb, who's ransomed all people for God, and who's made all people a kingdom and priests, who will reign with him on this earth. So let's talk about racism. Now, I want to acknowledge again all of the limitations. I'm a white male who's limited in my perspective and understanding. I don't hold all the answers, nor do I intend to offer a final word on the matter. Instead, I am a pastor who's reading the scriptures, wondering what it means to follow the politics of Jesus in our current political moment. And I feel convicted to my core that racism is one of the pressing concerns the church must engage repeatedly, collaboratively, and persistently because the blood of the Lamb calls us to worship the same God together. Now, what does that mean for us? And by us, I speak as a white person to a largely white audience. Practically, politically, I think Ibram Kendi is doing some really important work when he says, racial inequality is a problem of bad policy, not bad people. I think that contains a very kind hand of reconciliation from our brothers and sisters in the minority communities that are offering to collaborate with us as white majorities on charting better policies. Kendi has been leading a think tank out of Boston University, an America University based in D.C. has been collaborating as well. And he's been attempting to propose creative and concrete policies based off of empirical studies on the best ways to navigate helping impoverished communities, reversing trends in everything from overcriminalization to providing key government support, relief, and advancement. Now, inevitably, policies will be contested. 
I'm not even saying Christians have to agree on which policies are best, but the possibility that we as the people of God and the United States could be a voice advocating for the need for new policies, and then when good policies surface that clearly combat racial inequality. Don't you see in this vision around the throne at least the glimmering stone of hope of an equitable nation? Now, I know from a theology of sin that we won't get there on our own, but don't you want the church to be known, even if limited and flawed, for our commitment to combat racism and to offer ourselves sacrificially for the sake of the other? So my first call is this. We need to be listening, researching, collaborating, and advocating as the church for constructive policies that seek the good of our communities. I particularly feel drawn to conversations on prison reform, police reform, housing reform, educational reform. You may have others as well. I want to listen, research, learn, and even if there is a policy that I feel drawn to that you may not, together as the Christian community, I want to share with you in the value that we would dignify all image bearers of God and that we will advocate for policies that benefit the flourishing of our whole community, not just those who share the color of our skin. Which leads me to my second call. We need to be clear as the church about our theological vision that sees all humanity, all ethnicities rooted in the shared image of God and therefore worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. This goes back to Jennings' point. When I read Revelation 5, I can't help but feel the church has lost her political clarity about what the vision is that we're working towards. The vision of a shared throne room. The vision of a lamb standing eternally slain. As I've done my best to read deeply on this, I don't think there really is a secular vision of why we should be equitable and not tribalistic. I think it's actually our secularism that has allowed the left and the right to get so divisive, so angry, and so tribal. But it is a Judeo-Christian, biblical vision that sees our shared humanity rooted in the image of God and that advocates for a just society in which we sacrificially offer some of our own rights and goods so that we can combat injustice in the present. In order to revive this vision, I want to continue to learn at the feet of black preachers and black theologians. I've been following Lisa Fields, who's rooted in Chicago and has this incredible vision behind the Jude 3 Project, where black Christian theologians, pastors, and intellectuals are sharing resources from and for the black community. Esau McCulley is another one of my favorites, a fellow Anglican working out of Wheaton College, doing some profound work on black theology, especially in his new book, Reading While Black. I'm sure you could offer and share so many others. The point is that we need this kind of collaboration, this kind of listening, this kind of clarity. We need renewed theological vision. I think it could even help our grieving and broken world to hear what we actually believe, that there will one day be a throne around which all tribes, tongues, and nations gather, and we will all worship the Lamb who was slaughtered for all of us. So my second political call to you, in addition to researching and advocating together as the church for constructive policies, is to intentionally listen, learn, and then share rich theology, especially from minority voices, 
that are offering us a renewal of a theological vision that we can share with our secular neighbors. Here's my third call. As David Chapel argued in A Stone of Hope, without a theology of sin, we will not be able to combat racism and call for policies that curb our natural instinct to sin. Kendi is really great here. He acknowledges the racism in all of us, which I think he got from his parents' rootedness in the Christian tradition. MLK saw our sinfulness and saw our shared taint of sin as the commonality which gave him the grace to reach out across the aisle. Here's where I need to get real for a moment with the currents I know are happening. To my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who lean politically to the right, we need your humility to confess the blind spots of the Republican Party. We need you to join us in saying, Black Lives Matter, even if you need to add the qualifier that you don't support Marxism and that Black Lives Matter because of God. But we need you to join us in combating the sin of racism that is taking place on a corporate and societal level. We know you believe with us in a theology of sin, and we know you agree with us that sin is not an excuse to blame everything on individuals. Sin flows out of individuals, but it also infects the whole communal structure that we inhabit together. We need to name racism as one of the key bipartisan political issues all Christians will stand against. Yet to my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who lean left, we need you to be humble and gracious with those of us who are slow in acknowledging our sinfulness. And if we are to critique our party, we need your help in critiquing your own. A theology of sin argues that the Democratic Party is going to be just as flawed and just as tainted just as superficial in its attempt to address these massively complex issues. Here's the thing. I know how discouraging it is when those who lean right tell you that they're concerned about Marxism wrapped up in various conversations on Black Lives Matter. But as best as I can understand it, there are complex ideologies that we as Christians need to be slow, diligent, and careful about as we're talking about race to sort out whether they are progressive humanism, Marxism, or some of the more wonky strains of critical race theory that start to slant hard against any confession or practice of faith. We're not asking you to abandon any of these movements. We just need you to help us by acknowledging the prevalence of human sinfulness with us that can corrupt the left just as easily as it can corrupt the right, or just as easily as it can corrupt those of us who are attempting to stand in the middle. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally find it hard, normally at this moment, when we've really leaned in, to be all that hopeful when it comes to conversations on racism. It's part of what can be so defeating. What is enough? Who is even helping? What can be done? Who has the right to say anything at all? So I want to end with a simple, a very tangible political practice. Perhaps you'll recall each week as we talk about the politics of Jesus, I'm trying to ask, what is a public action for the common good that can be done by the church for the sake of their city and the communities they find themselves in? What is something practical that lets us express the politics of Jesus in our world today? 
For this episode, particularly with our reflections on racism, I wanted to end with one of the best models I've encountered of publicly, even politically, signaling the church's commitment to stand against racism by building genuine reciprocal relationships. Back in 2017, there was an all-black church from the west side of Chicago's Austin neighborhood that needed a new place to worship and found themselves knocking on the door of the mostly white church, Cornerstone Anglican, based in Oak Park. What transpired was the genuine connection of relationship, as several events allowed the churches to interact with each other. Pastor Michael Wright, pastor of the black church, began to put together an idea. Because he was well-connected to various black churches across the west side of Chicago, what if he could build a network in which predominantly white churches, after receiving some training and preparation, could attend one of these black churches to participate in their worship on Sunday and see the vibrant faith expressed in another cultural expression of the church. Yet this was the best part. Rather than showing up to bless or serve or any other notion in which these white Christians were operating from a position of strength or power, what if this group, after attending, could simply ask those in the church to pray for them? Beautifully, this ministry was called Walk Across the Street, and it's seen several thousand people across Chicagoland participate. White churches have visited black churches. Black churches have reciprocated and come and visited and been prayed for by white churches. Yet I share this organization because the impulse to build real, humble relationships that seek to be blessed rather than to bless offers a beautiful expression of how practical, political faith could work itself out on the ground. So this is actually quite simple. If you're stuck, if you're wondering what to do in regards to a political conversation on racism, if you're wondering what Christians can do together, here's the bold invitation. What would it look like for you to attend a church service that's of a different race or ethnicity and be blessed by a Christian community that comes from a different background? On our website, burningwordpodcast.com, you can find our digital companion study, that contains a handout, including the training and preparation offered by Pastor Michael Wright. You can also check out walkacrossthestreet.org where you have a video of their story and some deeper instruction. Yet my driving heart for you would be this question. What could this practice of walking across the street to join in a multi-ethnic, multicultural worship setting look like for you? Maybe there is an African-American congregation in your neighborhood or in your city that you've never attended. Maybe it's a Korean Presbyterian church, a local Spanish-speaking service. Maybe it's Romanian, Greek Orthodox, or something else. You know where the lines of racial division cut across your city and community. You probably now, even as I'm speaking, have a church that comes to mind, or even just a person from a different church that could be the place to start. But imagine how simple it would be to choose a Sunday in the upcoming weeks where you gather together either your small group or some friends, you reach out to the pastor of that church, share your heart to join with them in worship, and ask if they would be open to praying for you when you worship with them in their community. It always strikes me when I get here how silly it is I haven't done this more often, how infrequently I step out of the spaces I'm most comfortable in. Yet how bizarre it is to live down the road from others who profess the name of Jesus and yet who never know my face. Now, I'm not saying it will be entirely comfortable. That's what always holds us back. 
You'll have to make contact, perhaps do a little planning, perhaps even prepare your heart that what you're going to encounter might be a little bit different than you're used to. Yet imagine what this posture, a posture that says you're willing to be made uncomfortable for the sake of genuine relationship, a posture that says you want to learn from rather than correct or critique, a posture that declares one day we will all gather around the throne of the slaughtered lamb and then takes actual concrete steps to publicly do something about it. I think your friends who are minorities would be ministered to by your willingness to take the time to learn, to listen, and to worship together with others than your ethnic or racial background. I think your own heart for those communities and for Jesus himself would be deepened. And though perhaps this action is small, you could still contribute to the work Martin Luther King Jr. described as hewing that stone of hope from the mountain of despair. May we all find ways to join in that work until the day we are gathered together around the throne of the Lamb that was eternally slain. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.